And uh, I don't know, in some ways, I think this church probably has fewer problems with the problem James is going to address than many churches do. And yet it's something we should always be on guard against, and that's favoritism. Uh, It's uh, showing partiality to some people over others, and I've seen it uh, over the last four decades of pastoring churches uh, in many times. So let me just kind of set the stage of where we, uh, where we were and where we are and where we're going without going through all five chapters of James. But we remember in chapter 1 we were in, at, told that we need to pray for wisdom. And if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and upbraids no man, doesn't scold us. Uh, and then we're, called, of course, told to ask in faith. And then we're told that one of the signs of a mature Christian is bridling the tongue. And all of chapter 3 is going to be about that subject. So we'll see a lot more on that. And then he uses, this is the only time in the New Testament that the word religion is used in a good sense. In fact, is out of the 27 times the word religion is used in the Bible, this is the only time it's used in a good sense where it says pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so, in other words, uh, religion is just a series, uh, for most people, it's just a series of ceremonies, a, serious, a series of religious acts. It's about sacraments in a church, believing that the church can, can do the work for you. Uh, and it's not really about having a relationship. I, I really don't want anyone to say about me, uh, either now or at my funeral, that I was a religious person. I would, what I want to hear people say is, he has a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I want to be known for. Not that I attended to ceremonies or just went through the motions or warmed a pew, but that I really knew the living God. And then uh, we're told in chapter 2, which is where we are now, that there's going to be a warning against partiality. And that's only part of what's in chapter 2, but that's kind of its main theme, main focus. In fact, is James is going to tell us that there are four Christian doctrines uh, that should keep us from uh, practicing favoritism or partiality. We're going to cover two of those today. And then we get into chapter 3, and it begins chapter 3 with uh, talking about our tongues. And obviously that's the thing we have the most problems with, isn't it? The fact is, James says it's such a problem, it says no man can tame the tongue. No one can. Uh, if, if man can't do it, who can? Well, Jesus Christ can. Uh, that's the only way we can control our speech is if the Holy Spirit is inside us guiding our, our words. And then we're also going to hear in chapter 3 the difference between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And so this is kind of where we're at. So we're in that bottom right corner there uh, of that diagram. Now we're starting a new theme. So in chapter 1... Uh, most of chapter 1 was saying if you're a mature Christian, and that's what the whole book is about really, what does it mean to be a mature Christian, a mature uh, saint in Jesus Christ? If you're a mature Christian, you're patient in testing. Remember this when he said, uh, uh, you know, the word ask of wisdom, but uh, he also goes on to says, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse temptations or diverse kinds of trials, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. And so we don't like uh, what produces patience in our life. Uh, And by the way, just between you, me, and the fence post, I do not pray for patience. Uh, because the Bible says tribulation worketh patience, and I'm just not fond of praying for tribulation. So if you ask God for patience, you're going to get it, but not the way you think. It's not, he just not, he didn't just zap you and suddenly you're loving. Now I will ask God to make me uh, more loving, kind, more tender, more compassionate, because that helps a lot with being patient. But I don't pray for patience, because I don't like what you have to go through to, to get that. Now, we should rejoice in in our trials, and uh, but uh, if I can find grace another way, that's, I'll, I'll choose that. Uh, now, chapter 2, it's one thing to be patient in testing, but we also need to practice the truth. 
And in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that we need... Uh, you remember at the end of chapter 1, he says, but receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And, and I pointed out last time the NIV doesn't have the word souls in it, but it, it is in the Greek, and so therefore we should translate it. It, it affects our thinking, our feeling, and our decision-making process when we meditate on the Word of God. But it's not enough to be in the Word. We have to be doing the Word. For if any man looks at the Word and goes away and straightway forgets what a manner of man he was, that's, that's a bad thing. But the man that looks in the Word and continues therein, this man should be blessed in his doing of the Word. So blessing comes from doing the Word. So immature people can talk about their faith, but mature Christians flesh it out in their lives. They live it out. It affects the way they walk. It affects the way they talk. So hearing God's Word and talking about God's Word should never substitute for us actually doing God's Word. Now James, as we begin chapter 2, is going to uh, give his flock a simple test. And I say his flock because James is a general epistle. You remember that James in Acts 15, he was the head of the church of Jerusalem. That's why when they had the council at Jerusalem and they're debating whether uh, uh, Gentiles have to be circumcised before they can be saved... Uh, people that were part of uh, the Judaizers, as they were called, uh, were made their argument. And then uh, the apostles, uh, especially uh, Paul and Barnabas, with their experience of ministry, gave their testimony uh, of how Gentiles received the gospel. And they had the sign of the fact that they had received the Holy Spirit of God. And, and finally, James gets up and he says, Men and brethren... My judgment is this. Now, why was he the one making the judgment? Because he was the head of the church at Jerusalem. He had listened to everybody talk. He, may, he had listened to what everybody thought. He had probably asked some questions. And at the end, he says, my judgment is this. So James went from being a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and probably got a lot of scorn for the, his relationship to Jesus Christ to being head of the church of Jerusalem. And so, yes, there was a local congregation of whom James was the pastor, but he's addressing a larger group of Jewish Christians. Now, that's not to say it's, the book's not for us because we aren't of Jewish descent, and I think I am 164th Jew, but that's not uh, many uh, blood cells to count, I guess. Uh, but the reality is the, that he's addressing a primarily Jewish congregation, and he's going to put them to the test. Now, by the way... Jews were not, generally speaking, very inclusive people. In fact, as we'll read from Acts chapter 10 later, that Peter actually went so far as to say, you know, and this is when he went to Cornelius, uh, and uh, God had, remember, God gave Peter a dream, and this sheet dropped and had all these unclean animals in it, and, and uh, God says to Peter in the dream, arise, kill, take, and eat. And Peter says, oh, oh, no, I can't do that. You know, I'm a good Jew. I'm not supposed to do that. And God says, call not that thing unclean, which I have called clean. And then when he wakes up, he's given an instruction to go see this guy named Cornelius, who was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And uh, he goes to Cornelius' house, and he states very matter-of-factly, you know that as a Jew, I'm not even supposed to be here. It's a sin for me to, to fellowship with you. Nevertheless, God has told me, to come to you. What's up? And that's obviously not the King James Version. Uh, but uh, what happened though is Cornelius and his whole family came to know the Lord as a result of, of Peter. And then Peter concludes that now he understands that with God there's no favoritism. There's no partiality. There's no respect of persons. doesn't matter uh, your nationality or anything. So he, James' test is this. You're sitting in church and two people who are visitors come in the door. And when the visitors get there, you happen to notice that one of them is wearing a really nice ring and he's got on really nice clothes and brand name clothes and uh, it, he, his hair is well uh, coiffed and, and maybe his wife has you know, nice makeup and a great hairdo and pretty jewelry around her neck and wrist and, and, and then you notice that somebody else comes in and basically they look like they've been living under the overpass. They, they're homeless, their clothes are tattered. Uh, maybe they don't smell quite the way you'd want them to smell. And in general, they look like there's nothing uh, worthwhile in their lives. Maybe there's a little 
uh, odor of alcohol or something on, on their lips. And he says, now, how do you treat these two people? Do you treat them the same? Or do you put one up in a place of honor where everybody can see the prestigious vet guests that have come to the services and you put the other one kind of in the back? And what James is going to tell us is that we cannot separate how we treat people from our relationship with God. Uh, those two things uh, go together. Judy, would you mind bringing my Yeti up here, sweetheart? Um, I took some medication. I'm a little dried out this morning, so I appreciate your patience. First John 4.20 says this. If a man say, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen... How can he love God whom he has not seen? You notice that in John, he, he says that our relationship, thank you, sweetheart, our relationship to God uh, is very closely tied to our relationship to brother. We can't say that we love God if we don't love a fellow human being. And some human beings pose more of a challenge in that area than others. Now, most of us are familiar with the golden rule. It's stated a couple of different ways in the New Testament. But in Matthew 7, 12, it says this, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. By the way, when it says this is the law and the prophets, what it's saying is, if you could follow this principle, you know, treat others as you'd like to be treated, you'd be keeping a whole lot of the law and the prophets. Jesus said it another way. He said that the first commandment, somebody asked him, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is likened to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, which is basically the same thing that he says in Matthew 7, 12. And then Jesus went on to say, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So you take all the 613 commands of the Old Testament and if you just did those two things, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, you'd keep all 613 commandments. You wouldn't have to worry about, uh, you know, is, is that the seventh commandment or is that the fifth commandment? You know, you're trying to sort it out in your mind. You don't have to worry. Just remember those two and you got it, you got it covered. Now, James 2.1, and we begin looking at James and we're going to read through uh, the first 13 verses together. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to one who's wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit down uh, by my footstool, or some translations will say, make yourself my footstool. In other words, let me prop my feet up on you. Um, then he says, have you not made distinctions upon yourself and become judges with evil motives? In other words, he's saying, you're discriminating against the poor man and you're doing it with a wrong motive because you want the rich guy in your church because that benefits you in, in some way. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich exploiting you and they themselves dragging you into the courts? Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name of the one to whom you belong? And evidently this was a problem in James' day is that uh, you will read later in the book of James that uh, chapter 4, I believe it is, that uh, we had employers who were taking advantage of their employees by not paying them their wages daily. Now, I'm sure most of us get our check once a month or we get a check on the 1st and 15th and some people get paid every two weeks. Uh, it's pretty uncommon anymore just for people to get paid weekly because we're trying to keep costs down. Uh, and, and in my case, I get paid on the 1st and the 15th. Uh, what, what this means for what was happening, though, is back in that day, you were supposed to pay wages daily. In other words, if you hired a laborer and he went out and worked at your vineyard, at the end of the day, he was supposed to come back and get paid for that day's work. You weren't supposed to withhold those wages. 
In fact, as you can remember, the story that Jesus told of a man that hired extra workers to go out in his vineyard because he needed the crops to come in faster. And when he got to about the middle of the day, he saw it wasn't happening fast enough. So he's hired another worker, still wasn't working fast enough. So an hour before the the quitting time, he hires a third guy. And then when they all show up to get paid, he pays them all the same amount. And the people who had worked all day long saw that the people who were there for the last hour uh, had been given the same pay. They were furious. And you can understand that. A guy works one hour and you've worked ten hours. And, you know, how should they get the same pay? And, and he makes an interesting point. He says, if it's my vineyard, the vineyard master says, then I can pay what I want to. In other words, I'm the authority here. Also, uh, it probably means that the guys that came in the last hour really worked hard against that deadline where the guys that had been there for eight or ten hours uh, were kind of taking it easy. Uh, but the point is, is that he rewards as he chooses. By the way, I think we're going to see a lot of that in heaven. We're going to see people that became a Christian very late in life and had very little time to serve the Lord, but they did something for Jesus with the time that they had, and they'll be rewarded as richly as someone who maybe was a Christian for 50 years. That's, you know, and that's okay. That's all right. God's got enough riches to go around and none of us will have a reason to complain when we get to heaven. But he goes on here. He says, do they themselves not blaspheme the good name of the one to whom you belong? So in other words, when we, we treat other people wrong, when we treat our brothers in Christ and we drag them into court, uh, we are blaspheming the name of Jesus. I actually had a, heard a, a seminary student one time threatened to sue another seminary student. And I, I said, how do you reconcile that? Paul told the Corinthians that they were not to go to law before an un, unsaved judge. And I said, James says that you blaspheme the name of Christ when you do that. See, we, we have to just quit doing what we want to do and we have to flesh out Scripture in our lives. We shouldn't be going to court to resolve problems uh, between Christians or to terminate relationships between Christians because it doesn't honor God. Let's go on. James 2 verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law. Now, remember from chapter 1, we've had this term already. The royal law means the love of Jesus Christ. If we're keeping the love of Christ. He says, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, that means you love one more than the other, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. And by the way, that's an important verse. You only have to break one commandment to be a sinner. You only have to sin one time to be a sinner. And no sinner gets into heaven without the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Okay, so when I was living in Canyon, Texas, just outside of Amarillo, uh, and I remember I was probably probably six years old. Uh, I believe that's how old I was at the time. I was six years old, and my mother and I walked to a local convenience store. Uh, my dad was, we only had one car. My dad was gone off to work, and, and we picked up some grocery items, and on the way out, I'm a little six-year-old kid. I see bubble gum. Nobody's ever bought me bubble gum, but I wanted bubble gum. I took a piece of bubble gum. And uh, we, we were about two and a half blocks back toward the house when my mother noticed I was chewing bubble gum, and I had not, she had not bought any for me, and she asked where I got it, and I told her. Well, we made a trip back to that store for me to ask forgiveness of the store owner for stealing bubble gum, and, uh, and that was embarrassing. I never wanted to do that again. I have never yet taken another piece of bubble gum that didn't belong to me. Uh, she cured me of that. Uh, because, and it was a good message. But here's the point. That one stealing a piece of bubble gum, if I had never done anything else wrong in my whole life, I have transgressed the law of God. Now, I've had plenty of other sins, trust me. I actually had one lady call me one day and, and uh, she wanted to come to my church and she wanted to teach a Sunday school class when she got there and I started questioning her and of course she had, I found out, been going to the United Church of Christ Scientist, in other words, a Christian science church. Uh, and of course, they don't even believe anything exists. We're all just random thoughts in the mind of God. And apparently one of... Uh, 
she, she just told me that she had never sinned. And so I quoted her the scripture. It says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. She didn't think that was real great. Uh, she wrote me an interesting letter. I still have. It's the only person that has ever in writing called me a milksop of a preacher. I'm not exactly sure what a milksop is, but apparently I am one. So we've got to keep the whole log. Verse 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you think, well, what does that have to do uh, with this? If we break one law, we're a lawbreaker, so we need to be living by the law of liberty, which is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the law of Christ's love showing through us because unless we live showing the love of Christ toward others, we are going to be judged. Now, so here's kind of the logic between those last two verses. The law commands me to love my neighbor as myself. Remember, Jesus said this is one of the first, the great two commandments. And here in James 2.8, he, he quotes that second of those two great commandments partiality or favoritism is not a loving thing to do. If you've got eight kids, you don't want to love one of them more than the other. Uh, they need to know that they're all loved and that they're all special. Uh, so if you show partiality and it's against the law to do so, then doing so makes you a lawbreaker. And we are warned that we need to show our faith by our works. Now, we're going to see a lot of this in James chapter 2, that we need to show our faith by our works. I remember, I believe, sometimes I can't remember whether I saw some important truth of life on Rowan and Martin Laffin or Hee Haw. I'm pretty sure this was Hee Haw, but they had a guy dressed up. I, I grew up with uh, those things. I grew up, uh, my, my stepmother gave me quite an education with Hee Haw, uh, but there was this guy that dressed like Colonel Sanders, and he would get on there and he would say, you show me a, and then blank, whatever it was, and he says, and I'll show you, and it was some humorous twist on this. Well, James is basically going to say, you say that you have faith, but I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, by the way, Martin Luther got hung up on this, and he misinterpreted it, and he thought James was teaching that we had to be saved by working our way to glory. Well, the fact is, none of us can ever do anything to impress God, okay? Let's just get through that right now. Nothing you do, good or bad, is enough to impress God. Uh, and so we'll never do enough good to get into heaven. And the church that we're in can never do enough good in terms of sacraments that they offer to get us into heaven. How do we get into heaven? James says it's still, like Paul it's by faith in Jesus Christ and it's by that grace that he died for us and that he offers this. For by faith are you, are you saved, for by grace are you saved. That not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Now we can't get away from grace, but James says if you want to know if I have faith, you should see it living out through my life. I'll show you my faith, which is what saves me, my faith in Jesus Christ, but I'll show you my faith by my works. See, the reality is you can't see my heart. You don't really know if I've ever asked Jesus Christ in my heart. You don't know if there's any sin on my heart or sin in my heart. But if I am genuinely born again, it should have changed my demeanor, changed my life, changed my future, changed my family, changed the kind of employee I would be so that it's evident from what you can see that Jesus really is in my life. And that's the, that's the key. So then finally he says, therefore, if you show partiality, you're guilty as a breaker of the law. So this is the logic that he's going to follow for us. So let me read a parallel passage for you, two, two passages from Matthew 7, because I want you to see, I think James probably was at the Sermon on the Mount. The reason I say that is because James, by the way, quotes more uh, scriptures from other places than any other book of the New Testament, even though it's a short five chapters. That's pretty impressive to me. Uh, Hebrews comes close and, and other, you know, Paul obviously quotes scripture often. But James is replete and a lot of his quotes are from the Sermon on the Mount. So let's compare Matthew 7 with James 2. 
Here, let's read Matthew 7 so we can do that. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for by what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and by what measure you measure out, it will be measured to you. And why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam that's in your own eye? Or how will you say to your brother, allow me to remove the speck from your eye, and behold, the beam of wood is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the beam of wood from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, or throw your pearls in front of pigs, lest they trample them with their feet, and turn around and tear you to pieces. Now, this isn't part of the sermon, this is just free, no extra charge here, uh, but if you've got a little tiny splinter of wood that was in your eye, when it's here, it blocks a whole lot of vision. You might see a tiny speck in somebody else's eye and it really looks like a tiny speck. In other words, you might be to, wrong to the same degree your brother is, but it's blocking your vision more. That's why we have to deal with our own sins first before we can help others. Now, jumping down to verse 12, Jesus continues, Therefore in all things... Whatever you want that people should do unto you, thus also do to them. Again, that's the, the golden rule. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, because broad is the great and spacious broad is the gate, and spacious is the road that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, because narrow is the gate and constricted is the road that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. They do not gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, do they? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. Or as Jesus said, you'll know them by their what? Their fruit. A good tree is not able to produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree to produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As a result, you'll recognize them by their fruits. So let's look at some comparisons. So in Matthew 7, we're, we have a prohibition against judging. And in James 2.1, there's a prohibition against favoritism because favoritism is making a judgment that one person is more worthy of honor than another. Uh, in Matthew 7, 3 through 5, there's this illustration of getting rid of your, your own beam, your own fault, dealing with that before you try to help someone else. And James 2 says we need to remove our partiality so that we're qualified to instruct or discern. I would prefer that word to judge, uh, that we are qualified to discern problems in someone else's life. In chapter 7, verse 6 of Matthew, there's a warning not to despise uh, the holy in favor of dogs or pigs. And, and in James he says, don't despise one rich in faith in favor of the rich. Uh, in Matthew 7, the summary of the law is do to others what you would have them do unto you. And in James 2, we're to love others as ourselves. And in Matthew 7, there's a warning against false prophets. You will know them by their fruit. And in James 2, there is a warning against a dead faith. He says there is a dead faith which just is intellectual. There's a demonic faith which has also got an emotional component. But real active saving faith, it, you can know that it's there by watching the works of a man's life. The works don't save him. The works are evidence of the fact that he's been saved. Just kind of like baptism. A lot of churches teach that baptism saves you. Church of Christ teaches you that. It's called baptismal regeneration. Uh, Greek Orthodox Church teaches that. They call it the sacrament of baptism, and they go so far in their doctrinal statements as to say that if a child is baptized, he needs never worry later about repenting uh, and inviting Jesus Christ in his life. And yet Jesus said in Luke 13, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And you can't, you can't do away with that. So there's four doctrines that James says as a pastor will affect the way we treat others. We're only going to look at the first two today, but here's the first one, and that is the deity of Christ, and it affects the way that we see others. See, he says this, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's using the term here to indicate that Jesus is God. He calls him Lord. With partiality. See, we are predisposed to judge people by their outward appearance. But James says uh, we shouldn't do that. And I think there were a lot of people in, in the, maybe the church of Jerusalem, maybe other churches that, uh, where there were Jewish Christians that James had heard about, 
that had this problem of, of wanting to look important, kind of like the Pharisees always wanted to look important, and uh, they often wore those little bells around the, the bottom of their garment because they wanted people to hear when they were going into the temple. And then when they gave the offering, they, they converted all of their $20 bills in, into denarii so that they could pour it in. It would make a whole lot of clinking and people could just listen to all the clinks and, and, and everybody be so impressed with all the money that they were putting into the offering plate. It would be like us having uh, somebody just put uh, pour a bag of pennies in there, and seven dollars of pennies might sound pretty impressive in the bottom of the offering plate, uh, and yet seven dollars doesn't go very far to paying the electric bill. And yet Jesus, remember, one day was watching this this pompous display of people's uh, giving that had gotten small coins, so everybody could hear how impressed they were. And and a lady comes on, and all you could hear was plink plink because there were wasn't but two coins. And Jesus said to his disciples, "This woman." has given more than any of the rest of them. And, and the disciples are kind of scratching their heads and thinking, how can that be? We heard two little plinks instead of all the noise. And then he explains, for she has given all that she had. And, and then he goes on to say, the story of this woman will be told in the gospel from now on. And that's why we still have sermons on it today. An amazing thing she gave of what she had. Now, so James warns his flock in James chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, My brethren, strive not to be many masters, knowing that such shall receive the greater condemnation or the greater judgment. In other words, everybody wanted to get up, stand behind uh, the lectern or sit in front of the, the congregation, the synagogue, as they taught while they were seated. Uh, and they would, you know, they wanted to be that important guy that everybody listened to. Like years ago, there was a commercial on TV for the stockbroker E.F. Hutton. And you would hear somebody uh, in a coffee shop or in some room and they're talking to, privately one-on-one with someone else. And, and he says, my broker, and there's a din of noise going on in the background. He says, well, my broker's E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and all of a sudden, the entire coffee shop went silent. Why? Because everybody wanted to hear what E.F. Hutton had to say. Well, and everybody wanted to be E.F. Hutton. They wanted people to listen to them when they opened their mouth. And that was a big deal. And he says, you know what? Don't strive to be teachers in the church uh, unless God really calls you to that because God's going to judge you uh, if you mislead people in the Word of God. It is a serious thing to handle the Word of God. It's a serious thing to explain it. You need to make sure that you're not up there pontificating on your own opinion. You're up there to explain what God says. And to do that, you've got to spend time studying. You need to study diligently to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. We've got to put uh, the effort in it to make sure that we're not misrepresenting what the Lord has to say. And apparently this was kind of a problem. So there was some some striving for judgment, and, and they might treat people differently if they thought those people could help them get promoted to the position that they wanted. Now, obviously, the homeless guy's not going to help you, so let's go with the rich guy, and if he likes you, the, you know, the church or the synagogue will maybe put you in that position. And by the way, Jesus did not show favoritism, a- absolutely not at all. And Matthew 22, listen to this, and they sent their disciples to him with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth. I don't know that they really believed anything they just said here, but it was certainly trying to flatter Jesus. Uh, And he says, And you do not care what anyone thinks. In other words, you don't have respect to persons. You don't care if it's a rich person, poor person, influential, which side of the tracks they're on, what color their skin is, what nation they're born in. You don't care about that. Now that was a true statement. And they even these lost people knew that Jesus didn't show favoritism. He says, because you do not regard the opinion of people. Uh, By the way, one of the traps that we get into as Christians is worrying what other people think about us. What are they going to think if I am firm on my stance that marriage is till death do you part? What are people going to think of me if I don't support the choice of uh, a a same-sex lifestyle together? What are people going to say about me if I stand up for my convictions? Uh, And the old saying is, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And that's uh, very true. See, our Lord didn't look at the outward appearance so much so that he actually told us uh, people, he says, judge not by men's appearances, but judge righteous judgment. In other words, don't make decisions about people based on their appearance. 
So he was not impressed with riches. He wasn't impressed with social status. And that's why that poor widow that gave her her last two coins uh, gave far more than all those that went up there and, and dumped in the, the loud clanging stuff. Now, another thing about Jesus is when Jesus looked at somebody, he didn't just see who they were right then. He saw who they could become in him, who they could become in Jesus Christ. See, I, I, I raised my kids without any regard to skin color. In fact, as I, I still remember, we were living in the house we're living in now, and I think uh, Grace was probably seven or, or eight, probably eight years old as I remember. And, uh, you know, Faith was a little bit older than that. And they came home one day, and they, they just were, were dumbstruck, really, because someone had made a negative comment about the two girls that live in the house behind us who at that time were both black. And they, they had to question me, why would anybody be bothered by what their skin color was? My daughters hadn't even noticed they were black. They just thought they were darker brown. You know, That's, that's the way our kids should be growing up. They should be growing up in a, a society where race isn't important. And oddly enough, you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., when he, in his speech, I have a dream, he basically said, I have a dream that one day race won't matter. And that's, that's the way it ought to be. Uh, and the fact is, there, there's really no... This whole idea that one race is superior than another is a product of evolution. See, I believe God created us. I think there's ample scientific evidence for that fact because it better explains what we see today than this idea of believing all these impossible mutations that one day lead up to us somehow being more evolved and some races are better than others and therefore because they've evolved more. It's an evolutionary concept. It's not a biblical concept. Uh, and it's sad that people have fallen for this idea that there's some base. And, of course, now the big thing in schools is, uh, and it's causing a lot of problems, is called critical race theory. And that means we're going to go examine all laws to see uh, where we can make more equity between the races to the extent of, you know, they'll, they'll harm the 92% in some way to help the 8%. But it's this idea that everything has to be reexamined. We have to throw all the morals away and start over again so that uh, we ensure perfect, they call it equity, but it's not. It's actually preferential treatment of another class. Uh, it's sad that race is a thing. It's sad that we even have to think about it. Um, now, what, interestingly though, when Jesus looked at somebody, he didn't see the fact that they were uneducated or poor or had on bad clothing. He saw what they could become. In Simon who's at that time he named Cephas, which meant, you know, Simon, one day Jesus says, you know, you know I'm changing your name. <laughs> you know, Cephas means a little stone, but I'm going to call you Petros, which means a big rock. And, and let's face it, Cephas or, or Simon or Peter, however we want to call him, uh, this guy was a disciple of outrageous extremes, wasn't he? He went from one direction to the other. He was wildly unstable, but he did become a, a rock of the church. And by the way, be careful. Uh, Catholics will teach you, as will some other groups, that the church was founded upon Peter. That He was the first bishop, first pope. Uh, but actually, when Jesus was in a valley with a rock riverbed running through the valley, and he's with his disciples, uh, he's talking to, to Simon, and he says, you know, you're Cephas, but I'm going to call you Petros, meaning rock. And then he says, upon this rock will I build my church. And people reading that in English or some other language other than Koine Greek, and they say, hey, the church is built upon Peter. No, it's not. Would you want a church built on Peter as wildly irregular and uh, inconsistent as he was? Absolutely not. In Greek, uh, he used a word. If you're talking about that rock over there, you'd use the Greek word ekanos, whereas if you're talking about this rock here, you'd say tautos. And he's basically saying upon this rock. In other words, Peter, you're a little stone. You're going to be a rock. But upon this rock, I'll build my church. In other words, no matter how important you think you're going to get Peter the rock, the church is going to be built on me because it needs to be built on something that, and someone that doesn't change. So we've got to be careful that we don't fall for that trick of people saying the church is built on Peter. 
Well, Matthew, here's a publican. He's a tax collector. He's a class that nobody likes. He's despised. But rather than Jesus seeing that, he sees a faithful disciple who one day write the first of our four Gospels. In uh, the woman at the well. Remember that story? He's uh, at a well. The woman comes up. He's talking to her, and he says, uh, where's your husband? She says, oh, well, he, he, you know, I don't really have a husband. And he says, you've said correctly because you're on your, you know, you've had four husbands. You're constantly moving from one another. Basically, you've lived a life of adultery. And, and, and he looks into her soul and then he says, listen, if you uh, really don't want to be ever thirsty again, and he meant in a spiritual sense, I can give you the water that you'll never be thirsty from. And she enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ and she's so overjoyed that she runs back to town. She says, come see this man who's told me everything about myself. He's from God. And they all come out, and instead of just one person being converted that day, many were converted that day. And so he looked at a single individual who happened to be an adulterous female, and he sees in her the potential for a great gospel harvest. See, God sees what we can be. And, and if we're to be like Christ, when we look at somebody, rather than seeing them where they are, we should visualize what they can be in Jesus Christ. By the way, you can bless them. You can say, you know, I can see you becoming. And then talk about what they can become. Jesus sees their future, not their past. Um, I love testimonial services. We, we probably need to do one. The problem with a lot of testimonial services in churches is if a pastor gets up one day and says, I would like to have several of you just share your Christian testimony and you know, come up here to the mic and share with us. And people get up and they'll talk about when uh, Jesus Christ first came in their life. That's fine. They will often talk about how bad they were before Jesus Christ came in their life and all the trouble they were in. And, and you know, it's kind of exciting sometimes to hear how somebody got a how Jesus got a, a bum out of the, the gutter and made him a preacher for Jesus Christ. Some of that stuff's exciting. You have to be careful, though, because sometimes you spend so much time talking about what a person was that the focus is there rather than on what God is doing in their life now. To me, a testimony service should be more about what is Jesus doing in your life now. And sometimes we're going through struggles. Sometimes we have to talk about how we're hanging by a thread, but that thread is tied on to Jesus Christ, and that's your sure anchor in life. Uh, but we need to talk about you know, Jesus needs to be a present thing, not a past thing. Now, when Saul of Tarsus, who later became known as the Apostle Paul, when he was first converted, no church wanted to see him show up because Saul of Tarsus, every time he showed up at church, people were arrested and they were sent to prison. Some were sent to their deaths. He persecuted the church of God and made waste of it, he says himself. Being more zealous of the traditions of his fathers. <laughs> he was very zealous of, of Jewish law and very zealous of tradition and he, he would persecute uh, these people. So nobody wanted him. So it took Barnabas... Uh, we talked about, Brother Steve talked about some last week in, in our Sunday school lesson. Barnabas means the adopted son of the smile. Uh, he, he brought a smile to the apostles because he gave generously and he lived a life of faith. And he believed in Saul's conversion and he had to go open the doors to Christian churches to say, no, trust me, I know this guy. Jesus has really saved him. He's not the same Saul of Tarsus that he was. We're going to call him Paul, and he's a Christian brother. He can be a blessing to you. But Barnabas had to open the doors for him. Barnabas didn't look at what he was. Barnabas saw Paul as he was changed, as he existed in that present time. And we're often prone to, to judge by outward appearance rather than inner attitude of the heart. And we forget that Whatever we see, God can change anyway. I pray to God that somebody looks at me from 10 years now and I'm not the same man I am today. I hope I'm a new and improved version. I hope I'm closer to the Lord. I hope I'm more useful. Now here's the second doctrine and this will be where we'll finish up today. We talked about the deity of Christ. By the way, how do you practice the, the deity of Christ? It's this simple. 
You need to look at people through the eyes of Jesus, which means don't look at their past, don't look at their clothing, don't look at the color of their skin, don't look at their nationality. Look only at one thing, and that is what can they be in Jesus Christ, and they are someone for whom Christ died. If we look at people like Christ looks at people, we don't look at their appearances and we don't look at their past. We look at them as people whom Christ loved and loves. It will change the way we treat others. Um, I started telling you this story a while ago, so I'll interject it now. Uh, I think everyone knows I'm a firearms instructor. And, of course, uh, I probably won't be doing a whole lot of that in the future. The state of Texas has changed their law where anybody who is legally able to own a firearm can uh, carry one with them, either concealed or not concealed. That law went into effect on June 1st. So a lot of people don't want to take a, a concealed carry class. I still think that's... Uh, I understand people want everybody to have their Second Amendment rights and protect their families, and I'm all for that. And by the way, if you don't have your license and you want to bring a firearm here, please just let me know so I know who else is packing besides me. Uh, but the point is, uh, I, I kind of feel like uh, it's as stupid to let someone carry a firearm in public without having any training as it is to give your kid keys to the car and say, hey, there's no driver's ed, have fun. It's just about the same kind of thing. I, you know, this is a life or death thing. You need to make sure you know which end of the firearm the bullet comes out of. That's a pretty important thing. And you need to know that the four laws of gun safety that you never, ever violate. You need to know it's always pointed in a safe direction. You don't ever point in anything you're not willing to kill or destroy. You need to know that every gun is empty and, or is full or is loaded until proven otherwise. You need to always keep your finger off the trigger. You need to not only know what your target is, but you need to know what's beyond your target because if you miss your target, it's going to hit something else. I saw a guy one day out taking uh, shots with, with a gun, and later he went to the back of the property and found out he had a bunch of uh, bullet holes in his gas meter. That was a stupid place to have a gun range. Okay, so there's, there's basic things you need to know and you need to be taught because 100 years ago, you had a dad or a granddad that taught you proper safety with a firearm. People don't do that anymore, so you need a class. Uh, but part of being a firearms instructor is I, I occasionally go to gun shows. There was one this weekend at the Will Rogers Coliseum. In fact, it's still going on right now. Uh, and I love going to those, but I don't need anything. I don't need anything to buy. I don't I have everything I'll ever need, I'm sure. Uh, but I just kind of enjoy looking, but I enjoy talking to people. And I have discovered something over the years is used to, 10 years ago, if I just saw a guy wearing kind of a blue jean denim vest and it's frayed on every edge and he's got a big motorcycle club patch on the back of his jacket and, and his hair's down to here and a couple of the things are in braids and he's got tattoos all up his arm. I would probably instantly make a, a knee-jerk decision. That's not somebody I really want to talk to or be around. But over the years, I've gotten to realize they have the same love for being able to protect their families that I do. And this is probably a guy I would like in the, in the uh, ditch next to me when the end comes and we're having to all slug it out together. Because there is something we have in common. There is a common basis we have. And I don't look at them as being unworthy just because of their appearance anymore. I know that Christ died for them. And I've talked to some people like that. And they're thoroughly fascinating individuals. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to do that. We, we see their future. Now, the grace of Christ. One of the best passages for this is Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and, who has the, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he went up like a shoot before him, like a root from a dry ground. And then it describes Jesus. Talking about the Messiah, here's what it says. He had no form and no majesty that we should see him and no appearance that we should take pleasure in him. I hate this idea personally, but you need to know Jesus was not a handsome guy. He had no appearance that men or women should desire him. He just was kind of homely, quite frankly, uh, in his physical appearance. He was despised and rejected by men, partly because he wasn't good looking, I'm sure. A man of suffering and acquainted with sickness or acquainted with grief. He wasn't sick himself because sickness is a result of sin, but he was acquainted 
with that whole concept of, of people in suffering. And he was poor. He was dirt poor. Uh, and uh, in fact, he is so poor that the Bible says he had not a place to lay his head. Even foxes have holes, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head, Jesus said. And he says he was acquainted with sickness like one from whom others hid their faces. He was despised, and we did not hold him in high regard. I mean, people saw Jesus, and it's kind of like, oh, I don't look in the other way. That's how despised he was. And so... He doesn't fit our idea of this strong, masculine, good-looking Messiah. And, of course, a lot of the Jesus films have a Messiah with blue eyes, which I've always found difficult since he was Jewish. But one thing you needed to do with Jesus is never judge a book by its cover. He was despised and rejected men. Unlike the foxes, he had no homes. He grew up in relative poverty in Nazareth. If you don't know, not only Jews in general did not think very highly of Nazareth. So much so that when uh, people were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, they'd say, that Nazarene, is a derogatory term, that Nazarene, you think he's the Messiah? No, certainly not. And he wasn't physically attractive, and yet who was Jesus? John 1.14, and the word became flesh and took up residence among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the very glory of God. He is God himself. But boy, if you'd have looked at him dirt poor, traveling from place to place, sleeping on the dirt at night very often, or under covering of trees, or in a barn, or whatever was available, and he wasn't good looking. And if you looked at the, the cover of the book, you would have thought, uh, I'm not inviting him to dinner. Some people did, by the way, but uh, they did it for a different reason. See, in the Old Testament, when you wanted to see the glory of God, you went to the tabernacle. The Shekinah pillar of fire by night and the Shekinah cloud of glory by day hovered over the tabernacle wherever they were, and it was a visible manifestation of the glory of God. And then later, it was the temple, and for a brief period of time, that Shekinah uh, cloud came over the temple on the day that they dedicated the temple. You, you see that. And then later on, it is Jesus Christ, whom John says is, dwells, he was the in, had in, he had the glory of God, not the attractive physical appearance from the outside, but he had the glory of God. Now, we're told in the New Testament that when I ask Jesus Christ in my heart, the glory of God lives inside of me, and that should change me. By the way, how many of you remember as a kid, you, you were bored, and your dad or your mom, just to kind of quiet you down for a little bit, gave you a flashlight to play with? Okay, flashlights are relatively innocuous until, that is, the kid decides to go around shining it directly into everyone's eyes that he knows. And if you've got flashlights like I have, you don't want to do that because they'll burn out a retina. They're pretty bright. But... But you remember when you used to put the flashlight under your hand and you could look through your hand and your hand was glowing red. Same way, when the glory of God comes in us, it can't hide. It has to show through our lives. Just like the flashlight shows through your somewhat translucent screen. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of one of the three members of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. By the way, this scripture is special to me because this is the scripture that my dad read one day and decided to quit smoking. You don't know how many years of cigarette smoke and cigar smoke and pipe tobacco smoke I breathed in before my dad get, let this verse get a hold of his life and he quit cold turkey in one day. And then not only does the glory of God dwell in me as an individual, it dwells in Christ's church collectively. Uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, In whom the whole building, talking about the church and, uh, and its association with the body of Christ, in whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built up together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In other words, God's supposed to be present in church. When we come here... We need to know that we don't come just to listen to Brother Steve's Sunday school lesson or the lyrics of the songs, and those are very important. 
And I agree with him, I would like to be known as someone who meant the words that he sang. It's not just to listen to the preacher. We come here because we want a time apart from the world that we can really focus on God Almighty. That's the real reason to be here. Now, Jesus was judged, right? The religious experts of of Jesus' day judged him by the human standards and they wanted to throw him out. They rejected him. They wanted him killed and they wanted him taken away while he was the very glory of God. Now, what was wrong with Jesus? Well, he, he came from the wrong city. That was Nazareth. They looked down on Nazarenes. He was not a graduate of their accepted rabbinical schools. He did not have the official approval of the Sanhedrin, the people who were in power. He had no wealth. He came from a poor family. His family was so poor that on the eighth day of his life when they took him to the the temple and he was, uh, well, well, excuse me, on the eighth day when he circumcised and then on the 40th day when they took him to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord, they, they... because the Magi had not yet shown up, they had to offer two turtle doves. And then later, of course, remember that there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is why we know the Magi didn't come until after the temple dedication. His followers were a nondescript group of uh, fishermen and tax collectors and people that you'd never really want to associate with. And, it, and he hung around with publicans and sinners instead of with the religious leaders of the day as they thought he should. And so Jesus warns them in John 7, 24, stop judging by men's appearances, judge righteous judgment. In other words, he knew that they were judging him by his appearance and they knew that they thought he was trash. And that's how they treated him. But he was the very glory of God. So the question comes, as James kind of brings us back to the test of the two classes of visitors that come into the synagogue or come into the church. How do we judge people today? Do we judge them based on appearance? Now see, one, one thing you need to understand is that uh, God doesn't care about your nationality. Uh, he doesn't care about the nationality at all. And I, I think maybe I'm, I'm missing a few slides that should have been in there. I don't know why they didn't get imported. But you will remember, again, when Peter had this, this experience and he goes and wins Cornelius to the Lord. After that, he says, therefore, I perceive that God shows no partiality. God doesn't care whether you're uh, Taiwanese or Korean or Vietnamese or Indian or American or uh, from uh, Jamaica. I'm trying to think of all the different countries we've had people from. We used to have a prince from Jamaica that came to church here. Um, he doesn't care what country you're from because that doesn't impress him. There's nothing about a certain nation. Now, most Americans are proud to be Americans, and of course Texans know that they actually have something to be proud of. Uh, but, you know, we're not, God doesn't put one group over the other. And then he doesn't care about how much melanin is in your skin. Why some people look a little browner, some people look a little lighter. Basically, we're all just different shades of brown because we were all created. We all came from Adam and Eve. It's just a different amount of skin pigment. That's it. Now, over time, as genetic information has been removed, some groups of people have a different kind of hair than other groups of people. Some people have different kinds of skin than other people. Some people can grow a full beard uh, like these two guys back here. Uh, or like me, if I want to look like Santa Claus, I, that's what I look like. Other guys can only grow a little patch right there, and that's, that's it. Genetically, their whole, I, I have a son-in-law that he, he can grow about this much, and his whole family is like that too. It's all he can grow. But it's just the removal of certain genetic information, but it doesn't mean that one class is superior to another. Uh, and we need to look on people. We don't, it shouldn't matter what their clothes or fashion sense are or what the color of the skin is, or how they got to the church. Some people get to the church on the dark bus. Some people walk from one of the nearest, uh, you know, uh, pay-by-day hotels when they happen to be in town. Other people drive up here in, in uh, $3,000 Subarus that they bought years ago, and it was a great investment for them. Other people drive up here in a Lexus, okay? doesn't matter how they got to church. doesn't matter to God what our level of financial success is, whether we're in deep water uh, and we're, we're feeling like we're about to drown because more dollars go out every month than come in, or whether you've got somebody that has a nice savings account, a good 401K, and he's making headway in life, and some people that can afford uh, to get really nice suits from really nice places, and others of us have to go to 
Goodwill or to a second-hand store or Salvation Army maybe to find something we need to wear. Or we go to thrift stores maybe just because we like it. By the way, a lot of millionaires shop at thrift stores because that's how they got to be millionaires. So none of these things should be made a difference, and yet do we judge people based on appearances? And this is what we need to avoid. So here's, let's call this making it real. How do we take this home? The way you practice the deity of Christ in relationships is just to look through the eyes of Jesus. What would Jesus see looking at this person? He would see somebody that he loved so much that he gave his life for him, them, that person. He would see somebody who, if Jesus got in their heart and transformed their lives, they could be different from now and they could have a future that was amazing. If the visitor's a Christian, we can accept him because he's part of our family. He has been born in Christ. Christ lives in them. And, and that's why in Baptist churches, at least, we call them brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so because we're in the same kingdom. Steve is my brother. Kieran is my brother because we're in the same family. That's all that matters. And, and if the person is not a Christian, we can receive them and welcome them and make them feel welcome. Why? Because Jesus received us and made us feel welcome into his family. And we ought to be able to forgive anybody of anything because Jesus, or God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. There's not anybody we shouldn't be willing to forgive. See, the thing is, Christ is the link between us and others. If they're Christians, we share fellowship because we're in the same family. If they're not Christians, we have to love them because Christ did. And God can use the most unlikely person to bring glory to his name. Little short Zacchaeus. Had to climb up in a sycamore tree just to see Christ pass by in the crowds, but... Zacchaeus won some people to the Lord after he experienced that forgiveness. John Mark, who was in many ways started out as kind of a, a trouble item, and yet before it was over, God used him in a great way. And God can use that poor person that comes in. Now, that's not to say we don't need some discernment. There are people who go around uh, to multiple churches every Sunday just asking for handouts. Uh, some of them make an average income of $600 a day, by the way which is pretty impressive. But that's not what we're, you know, even those people, when we come in, we have to see them as somebody that Jesus loved, and that's why when somebody comes and they need money, I usually take them back there in the office. I'm going to make sure they at least leave with the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell them the plan of salvation. And, and just so you know, I've, I have never yet to this day given money out of the church fund to those people because I believe church funds should be used for church people and that if there's benevolence, it's to help somebody here that's a member of the church. But I'll give money out of my own pocket if I have any. Sometimes I've had other Christians give me some money to give to a person. But I always share the gospel with them first. That's how we make it real. James 2, listen, my dear brothers, does God not choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Are not the rich exploiting you? Do they not drag into courts? Do they themselves not blaspheme the, the, the good name of the one to whom you belong? Again, I already mentioned this passage about Peter. He says, But in every nation, the one who fears him and who does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter came to the conclusion, didn't matter what country you were from, you could belong to God. And, there's, and Paul says there's no difference between Jew or Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, male or female. Why? They can all come to the grace of Jesus Christ easy. Masters and slaves are alike to him. Rich and poor are alike to him. And the grace of God, James told us in James chapter 1, can let a rich man become poor enough and humble enough in spirit that he can receive Christ. And he takes the poor man and he makes him rich when he receives uh, Christ. 1 Samuel 2, Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust, from the ash heap. He lifts up the needy to cause them to sit with noble people and to cause them to inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth belong to Yahweh, and he set the inhabited world on them. What's he saying? Even in the Old Testament, God says, your status makes no difference. <laughs> your race makes no, no difference. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or noble. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, For consider your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to human standards, not many were powerful, not many 
were well born, but the foolish things of the world God chose in order He might put to shame the wise, and the weak things of the world God chose in order that He might put to shame the strong. And we could probably add here, and God chose a homely looking guy born in Bethlehem to show the very glory of God. So James gives them a pretty stern rebuke, and he says, When you despise the poor men, you are behaving like the unsaved rich people who are making your lives miserable. Because they were taking these people to court. Rich people were taking advantage of poor people, and they would make the poor people even poorer. By the way, there are still politicians doing that today. Uh, but if we favor someone because of their social status, we're blaspheming them in Christ. If you show preference to a rich guy, you're blaspheming Jesus because he was as poor as it gets. He didn't even have a place to lay his head while he was here. So how do we make this real? And Brother Steve's going to come and lead us in a song. The doctrine of God's grace means that every nation, every color, every social status, every male, every female can come to Jesus Christ and enter into a relationship with Him. And there is no class system with God. Now, I know some cultures have a caste system and they think, well, this category of people down here is the lowest category. We don't even talk to them as refuse. And then there's these other uh, classes of peoples that are very high, and we want to make sure our kid marries into someone of the same social stratus. That's not biblical. Now, it may be cultural, but it's not biblical. Uh, the lowest caste and the highest caste are born, uh, and God offers them salvation in exactly the same way. When Jesus died, he tore down, he tore down the walls between Jews and Greeks, but in his birth and life, he tore down the walls between rich and poor, young and old, educated and uneducated, and it's wrong for us to build those walls again. It's a sin for us to build those walls again. Favoritism is a sin. Partiality is a sin, and it should never be in the church of Jesus Christ. Brother Steve, come and lead us in a song. So I want you to embrace the deity of Christ by looking at others through the eyes of Jesus and seeing their potential and seeing what kind of future they could have, and then embrace the grace of Christ by understanding that anyone, regardless of social status or standing or nationality, can receive Jesus Christ. Would you turn to